Voice America Talk Radio Network. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesdays live, 10 to 11 Eastern Time, and at the end of the day, we archive the show. Uh, I have two guests this morning. My first guest is Christine Ariel. Uh, it's A-R-Y-L-O. She is uh, the author of, uh, she has a new book actually, her, uh, the official love guidebook called Madly in Love with Me, The Daring Adventure to Becoming Your Own Best Friend. Uh, Christine uh, got her MBA from the Kellogg School at Northwestern, and she climbed that corporate ladder for 15 years, but uh, decided to get off that ladder and devote her life to creating a new reality for women and girls one based on self-love and true feminine power. Uh, my next guest is, uh, is, is also an, an author, and he is the author of The Third Bullet, a Pulitzer Prize winner, Stephen Hunter. Uh, he's a gun enthusiast and a guns rights advocate. So this is, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, gun enthusiasm and, and his uh, stand on guns rights, as well as his new book, The Third Bullet. But first is uh, Christine Arlo. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Christine. I don't think I'm pronouncing your name right. You're actually doing really well. Um, I, um, like you're, it's, it's a Rilo, so you're super close. I'm you're close. super close. Okay. Uh, like with the rye bread, a Rilo. Exactly. That's why I always say good morning to you and to everyone out there listening. So happy to be with you today. Great. Uh, well, you've got an interesting story. And, uh, you know, as I said before here, you, you, you really kind of just did 180 degrees, it sounds like. You're in the corporate world, uh, very impressive, MBA from the Kellogg School, and then you decided, hey, this is not for me. I really, you talk about the, you really didn't, I don't know if I should say this, you kind of, you say you didn't feel good about yourself. You know, you had maybe feelings of self-esteem to be able to accomplish what you accomplished, uh, you know, in the corporate world, very cutthroat, et cetera, but you really didn't have self-love. Um, and uh, we're going to talk about what the difference is. So, I'll stop talking. No, it's, it's yeah. great, and, and, and I and I know um, I think a lot of you know self confident women and men could relate to this. I mean, if you had talked to me 11 years ago when I was getting my MBA at Kellogg, I would have been like self love. Like, what are you talking about? Like, I got to get back to my homework, lady. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I, I'm good. Like, I'm good. I like myself. I got a lot of friends. I'm you know I'm successful and I'm happy. And I and I would and I would have not been lying to you. I just didn't really know what happiness was, and I for sure didn't know what self-love was and, and for me you know I, I, I had a I had a big wake-up call and my wake-up call came in the form of a, a broken engagement and I was on the um, I was on the receiving end of the broken engagement on the way to my mother's house the day of our engagement party and that was a big wake-up call for me not only because here I was almost marrying a person that was the wrong person for me but also because I almost created a life that I didn't even want and I was on that fast track to, you know, having some kind of corporate job that it wasn't even the job that I wanted because I was trying to stay in this relationship that wasn't even the one I really wanted, living in a suburb I didn't really want to live in. How and, did you, I want to stop you there. Yeah. How did you get into that? I mean, obviously you have to be uh, very, you know, on the intelligent IQ scale, you have to be way up in the 90 percentile and above. But the, it sounds like the intellectual stuff really didn't match your emotional, you know, that, 
you were just kind of doing things because you were able to do them because you felt pressured by family or you felt pressured you had to marry this guy because he was the, I mean, I, was he also an MBA student or in the corporate um, world or whatever it was? But, like, how did you get into that kind of mindset before we go on to how you changed? And I mean, yeah. obviously... Yeah. Well, I was I was operating by what I now understand to be the the self esteem handbook, which is very different than the self love handbook. And and that is a, a handbook that many of us got, um, you know, after the seventies, and the, which was a huge rise in this focus of self esteem. And the message was you can do and be and have anything. And that was a really great message. However, most of us, including myself and most of my MBA friends and um, girlfriends and and male friends, translated that into oh, I'm supposed to do and be and have it all. And so my focus really became on what I was doing, what I was being, and what I was having, what I was achieving. I, I kind of joke that I'm a recovering achievement junkie and, and, and doing at it because my idea of success and happiness was just tied to how much I was achieving in my corporate career or in my bank account. And it wasn't like I was materialistic necessarily, um, and I was, I was very caring and very loving to other people. I just had, I, I really lacked things like self-compassion. Um, so I was so really, would you say it was all about, not necessarily all about the money, it's all about the achieving, all about the power? You got hooked into that? No, I got, well, I got hooked into if I have these things on the outside, then I'll be happy. So like, for example, with my relationship, which was a totally, you know, toxic relationship, it was emotionally abusive, it was verbally abusive, but because I, you know, I didn't have black eyes and I wasn't, you know, <laughs> getting beat yeah. up, I didn't see it as abusive. And I settled for it. I settled for this relationship that, that any woman that had self-respect and self-honor, really had self-love, wouldn't have. So just because you, I had a lot of self-confidence and belief that I could do and be and have anything I wanted to and I set my mind to, I didn't have self-respect and self-honor, which was that you only put yourself into relationships that really treat you as sacred. But isn't it interesting that he's the one who broke off the relationship, which I find interesting. He's well, the one who precipitated the crisis so that you were able to get out of this morass of all the, the lifestyle that you really didn't want to be living. You're not the one who broke it off. He's the one who broke it off. He's the one who broke it off because I was so, like, when, actually, when he, when he delivered the message to me, which is literally sitting outside my mother's house, you know, Christine, I don't want to marry you, Christine, I, you know, I, and, uh, by the way, I've been cheating on you for the last six months. You would have thought <laughs> you a woman. lucky girl. Yeah, well, I, and I'm so, I, I send him prayers of gratitude, like, I sort of, <laughs> on a weekly basis because I wouldn't be on the phone with you right now. Yeah. I would have been stuck in some job that I really hated in a house I really hated in a life that I didn't really like. And, um, I remember, you know, looking at him and thinking to myself as these words came out of my mouth, which you would have thought, you know, here I am, a very competent woman, getting my MBA, you know, big job, I would have looked at him and said, like, you're a loser, I don't need you, I'm out of here. That would have been a person who you thought, you know, who had self-confidence would have, would have said, but I didn't. I looked at him and I said, well, that's great, but we have a party to go to and we'll fix this later. And well, that's what I tried when to do. You talk about he was you were in an abusive relationship, not necessarily that you had burns and black and blue eyes and all that stuff, but it was truly emotionally abusive. And one of the myths is, and I think you bring this up, and I think it's really important because I think women think, you know, weak women are the ones who stay in abusive relationships, the kind you're describing. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's quite the opposite. They're very strong women who have certain skills so that they can stay in that relationship. They may be very bright. They may be very achieving, all of those things. Not that it's a positive thing to do, but they're able to maintain those kinds of relationships which aren't good for them because they really underneath are very strong women. Yeah, and it, it's easier to hide from yourself and easier from other to hide, people. Yeah. 
because you just people would have looked at me and they would have been like, oh my gosh, she has it all, and then I and I thought I was happy, um, but because I just that it doesn't even enter your mind because you don't you, you think well I'm not on you know Jerry Springer and I'm not on Cops <laughs> I'm not having this awful relationship, but it really was toxic and and now you know as a woman who really does have a deep level of self respect and self honor and, and that's how I came to this whole notion um, of self love, Catherine. What happened is after two weeks of begging this guy to take me back, I had to really look at myself. I'm like, okay, hold on a second. Like, how did I get here, like, begging this man to take me back, and like, and I'm getting my MBA, and I'm really smart, and I'm really intelligent, and I have a lot of friends, and I'm generally, you know, well-dispositioned person, and I was like, this message, my, my inner voice, and you know, that inner wisdom spoke to me, and it said, well, Christine, you have a lot of self-esteem, but you don't love yourself. And I was like, what? What, 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 do you, what do you mean? And I asked my girlfriends, I'm like, um, do you know what this means? And none of them knew what slutting themselves meant. And so I asked um, my older relatives, and, and Catherine, their answers were worse. They're like, honey, just don't ask such silly questions. Just be yeah. happy. Yeah. And I, I'm like, uh, that's not really working. <laughs> and so I, I made a, a commitment to like really figure out what self-love was, and, and, and that was 11 years ago, and to love myself no matter what. Um, even so, okay, we're talking about process now because you said you know your girlfriends really were not that helpful. They were, I assume, supportive in terms of what your decisions were, and the older people in your life didn't know what you were talking about. Just be happy and and go on with your life. So, were there any? Was there anybody at that point? Because I know a lot of many women go through what you have gone through, but the ending isn't such isn't such a positive ending as yours is. So, like, what would you tell the? What? what how can you? You know, when you've been in an abusive relationship and your boyfriend breaks up with you and you're begging to go back with him and no one's really out there for you to help you get through this, how do you get through this? How did you make that leap into, I don't really love myself. You know, I have feelings of self-esteem. I've achieved a lot, but I don't love me. I don't love Christine. How does the ordinary person kind of get to the point to be able to see this and then go on? Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and, and if you had met me 11 years ago, trust me, I was, I was just like everybody else, right? And I'll, and I'll tell you, there's two things that I did. Um, one is, I, well, actually, there's three things. First of all, I made a promise to myself that night that I had that realization, and there's, these are two promises that I've kept for 11 years. And the first promise is I promise to love myself no matter what, even though I don't know what that means. Um, and number two is I will never settle for less than my heart and soul desire. I will never settle for less than my heart and soul desire. And self-promises to ourselves, we often think about taking vows to other people, with other people. We don't think about them to ourselves. But there's something very powerful when you make a promise to yourself, and it becomes this, like, guiding force, this anchor. And so as things happened in my life after that, I was really able to stick to those promises and really choose myself first in those two ways. So that was what do you really, say to women who say, aren't you being selfish? Doesn't that sound like a little, I'm, everything I do is great, I love myself no matter what, even if I do something nasty to somebody else or, you know, my behavior doesn't seem like really, um, you know, positive kinds of behavior in my relationships, but I love myself. Aren't I just being selfish? Am I getting more narcissistic? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a common, it's a common response, and, and for good reason. Number one, if you look up self-love in the dictionary, it's defined as conceit, narcissism, and vanity. So it's an underlying subconscious belief that we have in our society. And, and here's the truth. If you're not already a narcissist, you're not going to become one because it's not contagious. It's something that, that happens very early in childhood. Myoclinics and a lot of studies on it, and you're much likely, more likely to be selfless than you are to be selfish. 
And um, the truth is, is that this is exactly why we, we, we think, oh, well, I, you know, I should be, I have to be, I have to be a good person. I just love this person. I should stay with this person because, you know, if I love this person, then that, that's all that matters. But, but imagine if you had a daughter and imagine if you had a son and imagine if that person came to you and said, you know, mom or, or dad, should I, should, should I love myself? Should I, if I'm in a relationship that's not healthy, should I choose myself first? If I'm in a situation where I'm not taking care of myself, should I stop and take care of myself first? You know, hello, oxygen mask on for, before you put your oxygen mask on to the other person? Of course you would say yes to that person. And so why are we any different? We're, we're not any different. We've just been taught by society because of the stigma of selfishness to not love ourselves. So you describe that as, I guess, maybe choosing the me before the we, and you have to do that first. And you can only love someone else and be loved by someone else if you love yourself first. That has to come first. You have to be, yeah, and it doesn't mean that you're perfect at loving yourself, you know, for sure. I mean, choosing me before we, that's, and I actually, that was, that ended up being the first title of my first book when I wrote about my whole relationship and how that, that came to be. Because if I had been in that relationship and, you know, things were all kinds of little warning bells, like he would say things like, I don't, you know, I'd say, like, I really want to live in, the, you know, in the city. I was living in Chicago in the suburbs. I'm like, I want to live in the city and I want to travel the world and I want to do this and this. And he'd be like, uh, I want to buy a house way far out in the country and I don't really like traveling. And I would be like, okay, that's fine, but maybe like when we retire, we could do that. And I was like 27 year old, years old saying that because I was willing to settle. I was willing to settle for what I didn't, what I wanted really in my life because I wanted love from this, this person. And that's the thing. If, you, if you're not able to give love to yourself when you're in a relationship, whether that's with a romantic partner or a relative or a friend or even your job, if you're not able to give love to yourself, you'll make choices that are actually compromise what you really want in your life. And well, if that you're compromising, of, you're not going to ever get the life that you want. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, and, and you say it very well. And now you've the, the person in your life, and I don't know how long he's been in your life, but you describe your partner not your, you're not not married, but you're I am soul married. Part. I am oh, married. married. I am married, but we but he's what well, we call each other our soul partners instead of right. you know, we live in California, so you know how that is. Yeah. <laughs> See, oh, I live in New York, so I've never heard of soul partner before. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and not married, but have a partner of 25 years. So, uh, but okay, so you're still. You're, how long have you been married? Uh, about seven years, I think. Seven years. So yeah, yeah. A, a totally different relationship, obviously, than the the guy you were with, the one who kind of precipitated, not kind of, who precipitated the crisis. So you got to the point where you found your soul partner. Um, so how does that work now? I mean, because your life has been like a complete 180-degree turn. Um, I read somewhere that you're called the queen of self-love. And so you've kind of not to, you know you and your and Noah that's, yeah uh, Noah, you, mm-hmm. yeah you're on this journey together to help other women to be to be able to I guess have the same kind of insight that you did and lead, be able to to do what you're doing in terms of being able to apply that self love so that they are leading a life that they they choose not that someone else chooses for them yeah you know about six years ago I got um, the tap on the shoulder from the universe that said, you know, Christine, go out into the world and talk about self-love. And I was like, uh, I was working at The Gap at the time, and I was like, uh, no, I don't really want to go talk about self-love. Can I go talk about leadership or, or health? <laughs> like, I really want to talk 
about self love, people they kind of like start either start to snicker because they think I'm talking about masturbation, or <laughs> or they or they get the you know selfish comments, or I get like that's not really relevant. And what I've come to understand is that leadership and health, actually, the foundations of those are loving ourselves. And and so for even you know for me like once I got I made that, that promise to never settle for less than my heart and soul desire I made another promise which was I only have loving respectful relationships and so all my relationships shifted and changed including my romantic ones but then other ways that I that I that I didn't love myself showed up and there were the ways in which I was really highly critical of myself you know I was like harder on myself than any other person could actually be and if you could have seen how hard I was on myself. I think a lot of other people experience this too. I know a lot of other people experience this. I talk to people all over the world about this, the, the, the immense inner critics or what I call inner mean girls or inner mean dudes. Um, you would have like called child services on, on me because of how much I was emotionally beating myself up for not being enough, comparing myself, unrealistic expectations. And so there was that whole piece. And then I, I really, you know, I really moved through that and loved myself in that way. And then I was like, oh, look, there's a whole other way I don't love myself because every time I look in the mirror, even though I weigh 135 pounds, all I see is a big vat of cellulite. And there was the whole way, you know, I didn't love my body. And then I, you know, worked on that for a couple of years. And then I'm like, oh, wait, here's more ways to love myself. And, and that was like how hard it was for me to take care of myself because I was so driven by this incessant you know, need to do and be and have it all and really sort of looking deeply at my self-worth and my self-care and my self-pleasure. And, and so it's this ongoing journey that's now been over 11 years and I've just been gifted with a way of understanding how to actually make self-love tangible and see the ways which you do really love yourself and the ways that you don't. In, in the beginning, you mentioned that, you know, you, well, we're talking about women, and you said, well, this could apply to men, too. But I think that it's very, you know, the way you're describing all of this, I think it is unique to women. I mean, men don't look, for instance, just in terms of body image, you're talking about self-love. I mean, that's also a piece of it. And you look in the mirror, most men don't look in the mirror and say they feel like they look like a ball of cellulite, even though they may. But they usually don't feel that way. Women do. Women kind of, I mean, there's a lot of those kinds of self-judging that we do. That's just you know, body image, but, um, and we somehow can't get into this, this, we have this perfectionism kind of thing so that it stands in the way of self-love, but also you said, and I don't know if this is a quote from you, I mean, you said, because I want to kind of explore your relationship with Noah because it's just, that all has to do with the choice that you've made in a man and a relationship, and um, you, and I think you said this, it says he taught me uh, what an intimate, loving, trusting, dynamic partnership could be, mm-hmm. and it, I don't know if you said he taught you, but did you also teach him? You know, there was just a little bit like he taught me. I don't know. That kind of caught my eye. I'm thinking, well, what about you? Did you know? It seems to me that sounds like he had to be the teacher and the mentor. Yeah. Well, uh, well, there's two things. One is when I make a comment on the body piece. Is that that's actually it's really interesting. Is that we often think that men don't have these same kinds of issues. They just have a different flavor. Mm-hmm. And so men may not be looking at their cellulite, but you can better believe that men are looking at their bodies and not feeling good because of where their bodies are and then being hard on themselves, judging themselves, pushing themselves to ridiculous things. That are the same thing, just a different flavor. Um, and I think oftentimes we don't think men have that, but they, they actually, they, many of them actually do. And it's always it's interesting, and it relates to the question that you just asked me about Noah's, because I think we have these stereotypes that are like men are this and women are this. And the, what, the way I look at it is that we're human beings, and we all want to be loved, and we all want to receive love, and we all want to give love. And 
we are born knowing how to do this, but we are basically conditioned and human through our, our human experience. We, we, we somehow be, end up sucking kind of at it. We end up <laughs> sucking at giving it, and we end up sucking at receiving it. And so for me, um, Noah really has been my teacher um, and my mentor around how to really receive love and relationship. And I can remember you know, being in my former relationship and saying to my ex-person and often, like, I really want a partner, I really want a partner, and you know, just be that partner. And he would say to me, I can't be that partner, I can't be that partner. I'd be like, yes, you can, yes, you can, I'll just love you more, right? And, of course, that didn't work out because it never does. We can't make somebody be who they are not. Um, and so meeting Noah about, I don't know, maybe three, four weeks into us dating, he says to me, Christine, I don't know what's going to go on between the two of us or, you know, what's going to happen, but here's one thing I, I just have to tell you. You have to raise your standard for men. You cannot like a man because he's nice to you. He's supposed to be nice to you. And I was about halfway through my grad school program at the time, and I looked at him and I was like, what? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I, had never, I had never even considered that as like a, like a bottom line foundation, like man must be nice to you. It's a given. All the time. It's, it's, not, it's a mandatory. It's not an option. It's not like an option. It's not like heated seats, you know, in a car. It's, it's like you have to have a transmission to drive the car. Yeah. Men have to be nice to you, you know, who, or your mate, you know, if you're in a woman, in relationship with a woman, doesn't matter. Same thing. It, you know, it's interesting you say that because I think that's such, it, it's, that's a really important, I guess, um, way of looking at things. One of the things that when I hear women say, Oh, he's so good to me. He does this. He's, and I'm thinking, what do you mean he's, I don't necessarily say it, but he's so good to, why shouldn't he be good to you? Why are you so grateful that he's good to you? That which comes across, you know, mm-hmm. that somehow you don't necessarily deserve this. It's not a given, but oh, he's just so good to me. And that always bothers me. And I hear it all the time from many women, many different kinds of women and different kinds of relationships. But I think that's, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, you know, there's, there's, it's, there's a, um, you know, I was talking about the self-esteem handbook and how I, I kind of grew up reading that and being taught that, that there's another handbook that came before that, which is before I wrote the self-love handbook. It's been around for many, 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 many generations. It's called the self-sacrifice handbook. And this is the handbook that most of our mothers and grandmothers received in generations before. And the main message of this handbook is give, 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 and then give some more and hey, Wait, give some more, and even if you don't have anything left, give some more. And what's hap- what happened because of that message is we learned that our value basically comes from what we give. It doesn't come from what we receive. It comes from what we give. And this is why it's so hard for us as women especially. Men have something you know, similar. It's just a little bit different. Of it. It's like we're only valuable based on what we give, and men only have this, there's this I'm only valuable based on how much I can provide for my family. And, and that leaves out a whole part of the equation, which is I'm, I, I'm also valuable because I can receive. And so especially as, as women, we have a really hard time receiving. And so when we do receive something like that, we're almost like shocked. <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa. And so our standards for the relationships that we're in become very low. And we teach that to our children. And so that's why you see, you, know, you can see a lot of, I see this so often with the high school girls I work with and the college girls I work with, so smart, so bright, and so just dumb when it comes to relationship. And so looking for that love and that acceptance and that recognition from their friendships and from their romantic relationships. And so they put up 
with all kinds of things that don't, and this is the branch of self-love that's so important when it comes to relationships, self-respect and self-honor, which is basically you treat yourself as sacred and you demand that every relationship you have treat yourself with that same sacredness or you don't have that relationship. Period. Now, is, is this one of the reasons, Christine, that you are going on? And I want to mention this. We only have, uh, actually, we only have, I guess, a minute left. But uh, because I want to mention this nomadic tour that you're going on, this six-month U.S. tour, which is called the Teen Love Tour 2013. Uh, tell us what that is, just just in a in two sentences. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We can find out more about it at chooseselflove.com. And basically, Noah and I are selling our house. We're going, taking love on the road, and we'll be in cities all over the country to start on the East Coast, on the West Coast, in the Mid Coast. And I'm just going around and, and sharing this message. Noah and I are sharing what we've learned about being in a relationship. I'm sharing the message of self-love. And um, would love to see um, any of you actually be out on the year on the East Coast. I'd be teaching at Kripalu in April, um, and so I would love to, to, to see anyone. You can just go to chooseselflove.com, and that's where the event tour schedule is, and it's also where you can get a um, free self-love kit that has lots of good um, information about how to truly make self-love tangible and practical in your life. ChooseSelfLove.com, Kapalu, which is very near me. I have to come and see you in the spring. And for listeners who want to keep up with the tour, that's the web. That's the uh, the website that they go to. Yeah, that's a great website to go to. ChooseSelfLove.com. And then you have a, a website too. If we want to receive your weekly love letters, mm-hmm. Christine. Why not? Yeah, Christine <laughs> like love letters. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christine arilo.com and Christine and then a r y l o dot com. You can go there and um, that's true. And I write, I write new... weekly love letters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and madly in love with me is the name of the book: The Daring Adventure of Becoming Your Own Best Friend. Great talking to you today. You too, Catherine. Thanks yep. so much. Much love, everyone. Thank you. Enjoy the tour. Thank you. Uh, I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Coming up next is Stephen Hunter, and we're going to be discussing his new book, The Third Bullet. Stephen is a Pulitzer Prize winner. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward, but upward. A New View of Life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to me on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesdays live, Eastern Time, 10 to 11. And at the end of the day, we archive the show. Uh, joining me this morning is uh, Stephen Hunter, author of The Third Bullet. Uh, he has written, what, 17 books. He's a Pulitzer Prize winner, and he won the 2003 Pulitzer Prize for Distinguished Criticism. He's a retired film critic for The Washington Post. Uh, so we're going to be talking about his new book, The Third Bullet, which has been called Riveting. Um, and also he is an expert. I'll say he's an expert on gun control because we're going to get into that topic. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Stephen. Thank you very much, Catherine. Okay, so let's talk about your book, The Third Bullet. Uh, as I say, I mean, I was looking at all the uh, testimonials, and you have a lot of testimonials from other New York Times bestselling author calling The Third Bullet riveting, ambitious, brilliant. Uh, what's it about? Well, it looks at the JFK assassination. Uh, what I end up coming up with is a new how, a new who, and a new why that no one has uh, uh, invented before. And I looked very carefully at the material in the Warren Commission. I tried, instead of, like many conspiracy nuts, uh, instead of uh, denying it and pretending that it was part of a cover-up, I decided to work within it and to try and build a conspiracy that my hero could uncover that was within uh, the framework of the known, that is, within the framework of the hard data. Uh, I try and play fair. Oswald is always where they say he was. He always does what they say he did, and yet I find of room uh, for speculation on motives and operations and uh, come up with a new uh, sort of theory of the assassination. And I will say that looking at the Warren Commission that uh, uh, carefully, I when I started this book, I was 100 a lone, 100% lone gunman. But now I do have my doubts, and uh, it's uh, it's very uh, there's some there's some very what can I say, shabby work in the Warren Commission that leave questions that have yet to be answered. All right. Uh, some and of let me questions. also say, it, it yes. is a novel, by the way. It's not a, it's not a, a book of, uh, it's not a, it, it's a drama, it's a story about a man, my hero, Bob Lee Swagger, uh, investigating this event. Okay, so it's not another Warren Commission. It's No, it's... it's, it's I hope it's informed, and I hope people who know and care about and have thought about the assassination, uh, I hope they understand that I've, I've done, I've tried to play by the rules, and I've tried to think rigorously uh, about, uh, about what happened and offer a vision of it that hasn't been offered before. How did you do that, Stephen? Like you went over, did you have to, I mean, because it's a novel, but it's also based on facts and evidence, I guess, that that came out in the Warren Commission, but you were seeing it from a different angle, a different perspective? 
Yeah, I think that would be a good way to describe it. And it was very interesting. One of the things, believe me, I'm no genius, but one of the things I've always been good at is figuring out ways to get from point A to point B. We know where A is, we know where B is, but we don't know the route that was taken. By comparing A to B and applying different scenarios against it, I uh, I seem to have some little trick of mind that lets me come up with credible explanations. And all my books are like that. I mean, it's a very helpful attribute if you write thrillers, and I usually use it in totally fictional uh, circumstances. You know, my if you're going to do this kind of work, you're working with conspiracies. You're always there's always puppet masters. There's always uh, uh, enemy agents, uh, strong arm guys, what have you. And it's really very much like an investigation. So I sort of developed those skills, and I. This is the first time, well, this is the second time I applied them to reality. I had written a book uh, a few years back set in, it was nonfiction. It was an account of the assassination attempt of uh, on Harry Truman in 1950. As you can tell, I'm very interested in firearms events. Uh, uh, the world goes crazy when guns come out, and I'm always trying to sort of figure out what really happens as opposed to what people think happens. And there's often a great disparity between uh, the actual and the imagined, and there's a great disparity between what is technically possible and what people assume is possible. And that's okay, can sort we, of can where I make... Can we talk about that, in ter- Steve, in terms of, um, like, uh, the third bullet? Like, specifically, I guess without, I don't know, you don't want to give away the whole story, but, um, like, what's possible, what really happens in terms of fire, uh, firearms and uh, the assassination with, your, with assassinations. But, um, like, be, can we... Give examples in the book of what you're talking yes, we, about. Yes, we can. Okay. We can and we will happily. Uh, there's a great uh, deal. With, rifles with telescopic sights have to be zeroed, and that means you can't just stick a telescope on top of a rifle and become a sniper. That rifle has got to be attached to that telescopic sight very precisely and very tightly. And then the sight itself has to be adjusted so that it shoots to the point of aim. And if you don't do that correct, correctly, you're, it's impossible to shoot accurately. Lee Harvey Oswald's rifle and his scope and his scope mount were totally out of alignment. Uh, what that means, it was very, very difficult for him to shoot accurately. The third shot, the shot that fired the third bullet, was a very difficult shot. It was at 265 feet at a target that was not only moving away from him, but is diminishing at 11 miles per hour, but was also trending off to the left because of the bend in the road. And in, I think... To my mind, it is almost impossible to conceive that he made that shot. Technically, it was, everyone thinks it was an easy shot. It was, given his equipment, given the state of his equipment, it was a very typical, it was a very difficult shot for him to have hit. So you're left with two conclusions. Either A, 
he was, and I hate to use this word, but from his point of view, he was incredibly lucky because, you know, if you're shooting a basketball or a, I once sank a 60-foot jump shot. Am I a talented athlete? No. But if you take a 1,000 60-foot jump shots, one of them is going to go in. And maybe that's what happened to Lee Harvey Oswald. But there might be other explanations for that third bullet, the destructive bullet that uh, detonated against the president's head. And, and, and that's kind of, those are the areas that I explore. I always wonder when I talk in, in talking to you, why doesn't the, does the did did not the Warren Commission take this into account, or this wasn't a possibility, or you know why are we just are we just hearing this now from you? Well, my reading of the report is that the men who investigated the rifle, there was a number one, a lead FBI uh, fire quote firearms expert unquote who interpreted and identified and explained the rifle to the Warren Commission. However, he was not a guy who he was good at identifying bullets from rifles. That was his strong point. He was strong point was not. It was mostly technical, theoretical, laboratory kind of knowledge. He was not versant with shooting with a telescopic sight, particularly at a moving target. This is something that hunters and snipers do. He was not that kind of a shooter. He was a different kind of shooter. So in my opinion, he brought the wrong mindset, the wrong skill set, the wrong set of interpretive abilities and, uh, and skills and insights to this very important investigation, and he never came close to solving it. And one of my policy positions is that I'd love to see that rifle taken out of storage. Uh, I would love to see it turned over to a blue ribbon panel, not of laboratory experts, but of snipers and big game hunters, men who have shot for blood at moving targets and have manipulated the rifles under extremely high pressure and get from them an impression or a feeling for what that rifle is capable of. If you if you set it on a bench and shoot it, you don't learn anything because that's not what Lee Harvey Oswald did. You have to shoot it against time in some sort of dynamic scenario that replicates the stresses and angles and the time uh, the time envelope of the assassination, and that has not been done. And and you're, nobody has ever tried. Maybe you can't get. I don't know where the rifle is. I guess obviously you do, but can't. One or if anyone had an interest, can't you duplicate that rifle and then do just what you're saying, even though it wouldn't be the exact same rifle, but kind of create that scenario without having that that rifle? You can to a certain degree. Again, you see, again, one of the problems here is that people who know guns and people who don't know guns speak different languages, and what you're saying seems entirely logical. And I'm sure 99% of the people in the world believe that that's true. However, each rifle has different, even, you know, and even rifles that come off the assembly line one after the other have different 
uh, I don't want to say personalities, but different performance envelopes. They shoot in subtly different ways. They have different vibratory patterns. They have a different feel to the stock. They have a different feel to the way that the bolt works. So you can only go so far with a replica. Uh, it's really important that the actual rifle itself, we have to know, for example, I'll, I'll give you an example. One of the things that is said that some people say is that even though the scope was not adjusted properly on the rifle, Lee Harvey Oswald shot over the open sights. This rifle also has open sights. Uh, the problem with that is that that rifle is a European battle rifle. Its sights are adjusted to hit targets at 300 meters. What that means is that at 88 meters, it shoots 16 inches high. So in order for him to hit the shot with open tar sights, he would have to hold 16 inches below Kennedy. And he would have to know within four inches on a moving target exactly where to hold that. That was a very sophisticated uh, uh, shooting problem that he had to answer. And given his background, his lack of experience, I would find it highly unlikely that he was capable of doing that. And yet that's not, and on top of that, every rifle shoots differently to a different point of impact with different ammunition over those open sites. And the FBI never tested it over open sites. We don't know where it shoots. It might shoot 16 inches high. It might shoot 16 inches to the right. It might shoot, you know, 24 inches high. It might shoot 16 inches low. We don't know. I mean, my bottom line, I'm not alleging conspiracy. What I'm saying is, I mean, I do it in the book because it's a dramatic example, but I think the lesson that I'm preaching is we don't know enough about that rifle to have to reach definite conclusions. We need to do more work. So, in other words, where did this third, or making an assumption that where there's a third bullet and where did it come from and who shot it and why? Well, that's what the book is about, and I come up, one of the things that I don't want to, I know this isn't Tom Gresham's gun talk, and I do apologize, but it's important to understand that this was a gun event, and you really can't understand it without making an effort to grapple with the gun aspects of it. And one of my problems with so much has been written about the Kennedy assassination is that too many people who don't know enough have said too much. And it's just, it, it's frustrating. Um, and uh, so one of the things I try to get into this book was an appreciation for the meaning of the rifle and the possibilities with the rifle. And, you know, if you love or hate firearms, none of that is relevant in this case. The only thing is relevant is this is a piece of tool work and what were its performance capabilities. And we have to know that before before we begin to speculate on other things it's, it's, because that defines what was possible. We have to know what was possible. We can't assume the possible. We have to investigate the possible. All right. Given that, let's just because we only—that's—I mean, 
I'll mention the book again, The Third Bullet, and, you got, and I want to make sure that listeners know you can buy this the book um, online, bookstores everywhere. And I want to, and uh, with the website that we can go to, or listeners can go to, to get more information about the book and also where they can uh, purchase it. Oh, well, I would certainly recommend that they go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Uh, there is a, I do have a couple of uh, fan websites. I have a Facebook page. If you just Google Stephen Hunter, you're going to learn more about me than you ever wanted to know. <laughs> and most of it, I assure you, is extremely boring and uninteresting. But if you want to know where I went to college, that that's a good place to find out. All right, where did you and go to college? Oh, I went to Northwestern University. You went to Northwestern. I have a son who went to Northwestern. Oh, um, well, that's good, yeah. Yeah, good school. Okay, so let's take all of that. Uh, you know, you have all the credentials, and uh, you've been described as a gun enthusiast. So give me, you know, let's, I'd like to hear what, you're ha- what you have to say about, uh, um, you know, gun control and uh, the proposals that our president may or may not make. Um, uh, just kind of since we only have a couple minutes left, and you are the expert. Well, I'm really not an expert on gun control. I do have opinions like everybody else. I know more about rifles than I know about the legalities. I'm not a gun control guy. Uh, I, as you might imagine, uh, I believe that, um, you know, look at a state like Connecticut where they have extremely stringent gun control regulations and yet this very ill boy somehow got a hold of this rifle. Um, and so it suggests to me that people who are ill in this particular declension of illness, that is, they have the illness that compels them to destroy the innocent, that gun control is not an effective net for reaching and catching them. Your profession, social work, is one very good way for reaching them. Mental uh, understanding, uh, having uh, uh, nets that are built into the system in the educational system and the legal system that are attuned to looking for the signs of this kind of admittedly very, very rare uh, affliction are, are 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 far more effective, in, and in fact, they may have worked. I mean, there may be 300 guys like this, but some social worker or some parent or some coworker said, "This guy is sounding and acting very dangerous. Let's visit. Let's let's start monitoring him." And the very act of monitoring, the very fact of being uh, of of being. Uh, of knowing that people are aware of this, uh, it seems to me, is a great deterrent and has probably saved thousands of lives and should is one of the things that uh, that should be looked at very carefully. Yeah, I so would agree I with you. I think that's my a piece. Is... I, I, no, I I'm sorry. A... No, I'm, I, I agree with you. I think that is a piece of it. Um, I also, another piece personally, and uh, I'm not an expert either, think the other piece may be not arming citizens with assault weapons, given also I agree with you that, you know, um, having to monitor these people who uh, have mental health problems will be a part of the helping to curb the problem. But also, you uh, there's another piece to this, too, I wanted to ask you about. You're the retired chief film critic for the Washington Post. 
So, I mean, you've seen, I assume, a lot of films and, and, you know, been involved in the media. What do you think about, you know, people are talking about, uh, you know, all of these violent films that are, and, and video games that kids play and the, the impact on that, uh, to people who may yeah. be mentally unstable? I think that there is a pernicious and a, I'm one of the few film critics who will acknowledge that, in fact, people are influenced by movies and by by uh, imagery and particularly when the movies portray violence they portray it with a kind of grace and style and clarity that it that it does not have uh, and they always sort of see it almost as balletic or poetic and they ex- and they exemplify the hero is a man of special grace and special power and you can certainly see, I mean, that appeals to millions of people and to a very tiny, tiny, tiny percentage. It appeals, uh, you know, in some pernicious way. And of course, you've got to make, you've got to weigh, uh, you know, the, the fact that a million people could see a particular movie and not be, uh, you know, and understand that it is a movie and one guy can see it like this Batman killer. And, and and step off into the madness of recreating the power of the Joker. So I think it is important for the movies to understand that. Uh, I I got in great trouble on the uh, uh, when uh, the young Korean man shot up Virginia Tech and killed all those people. Came across some photographs of him posing with his guns, and he was posing in pictures that were very reminiscent of the postures in the John Woo movies. And I pointed out that he was clearly influenced by these John Woo movies, which uh, John Woo is a fabulous director, and he can't come up with a lot of tropes like two guns in each hand and diving through the air and shooting horizontally like and at the same time. And it all on the screen, it looks really cool. And clearly the young Korean guy was influenced by that. I published that piece and I was widely denounced from left coast to right coast for my, from, for a variety of sins that everybody had thought I had uh, committed. But I do believe that Hollywood has got to portray, has got to come up with a recipe for portraying violence in a way that is I don't know, disgusting. I just happened to see Steven Spielberg's great movie Schindler's List the other day. And he, when he, there's several explicit scenes of people being killed by gunfire and being executed in the Holocaust. And he found a way to make it look horrifying. I mean, he thought about it very hard and rigorously. He also did this in saving private ryan he didn't make war glorious he made it very dangerous and very upsetting and that's the kind of thing i would like to see now you also ask about the media i wrote a piece very brief piece for powerline in which i made the following point i would like to see the new york times nbc cbs abc fox the washington post the wall street journal the la times all the so-called elite media agree not to publish the names and the pictures of these guys until after uh, adjudication. Now, 
I know that there's an Internet, and I know that those names will get out uh, and that we will all know who pulled the trigger. But we don't need to, we don't need to offer the carrot of international notoriety, which I also believe is driving people. It's, you know, I mean, we're such a fame obsessed and, uh, uh, celebrity obsessed culture. And so that for some extremely disturbed individual, being known is worth their life. And I find that extremely puzzling and upsetting, and yet it seems to be undeniably true, and it's new. The first mass killer with a gun was a guy named Howard Unruh in 1948 in New Jersey, and that was before there was really a national media. He did it because he was a combat veteran. He was uh, had been in very heavy combat. He was clearly mentally ill, and he did it because the crazy... The crazy, well, you don't like the word crazy because of your profession, but on the outside, it looks like craziness. And he did it because he was crazy. But there was no, he did not do it to become famous, and he did not become famous. There's probably 15 people in America who would recognize the name Howard Unruh. But we all know, we know who Lee Harvey Oswald is. We know who Charles Whitman is. We know who Ryan Lanza is. We know who uh, the Korea, I don't want to massacre the name. I always call him Joe. We mm-hmm. know his name. We know all these people, and there's no need to know them. You, well, you we know not only know the names, and we have to say goodbye. We, I could, you know, this is, uh, I mean, I, I like, uh, it's a fascinating take that you have on all of this, but not that only the names, and I so much agree with you with the New York Times and some of these, well, the, the, the major newspapers. The front page is, is a picture of these 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 killers, these who are, you know, um, mass murderers, and um, and I and I, I all the faces. I, I can, as you're talking, I, I recognize all the faces because you know that's that's what you see, and 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 you and, and the meat, not only the television media, but the newspapers, all that. You know, I agree. Um, that's one area that uh, I think we need to address. But there are so many different ones, and we have to say goodbye. And it has really been a pleasure talking to you, Stephen. Um, Thank you so much. Part, I, yeah. Uh, thank you, Catherine. Bye-bye now. Bye. Uh, Stephen Hunter is the author of The Third Bullet, and as we said, you can go online, you can buy the book uh, at Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You are listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.